Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And I want to thank you all for letting me go away on vacation for a couple of weeks. Uh, It was extremely beneficial for my soul and beneficial to Dana and the kids. And I'm also extremely grateful to Pastor Jess and Pastor Matt who shared God's word with you while I was away. I I knew that you were in good hands, so I was at ease while I was away. But as good as it was for me to get some R&R, I'm also very delighted to be uh, back in the pulpit to see and savor our Lord Jesus Christ together with you through his uh, wonderful word. And we are now in one of the most cherished chapters in all of the Gospels, uh, John chapter 17, known often as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And what's amazing about it is that is that Jesus allows us to eavesdrop on this conversation. He could have easily went away privately to pray, but Jesus wants us to hear this prayer because it's another means of teaching and another means of encouraging His people. And boy, did those original 11 disciples, that fateful night before Jesus' crucifixion, boy, did they need some encouragement. They needed some help. A lot of heavy and troubling things have been dropped on these men, and after three years of enjoying the visible presence and ministry of Jesus, they are now being hit with the reality that this special time is coming to a close. Jesus is going away. Indeed, He is going to die. And on top of that, they're about to go through some very painful trials. One of their own is going to stab Jesus in the back, betraying Him. Another is going to deny Jesus three times before the night is done. All of them are going to scatter and abandon him in his darkest hour. On top of that, Jesus is promising persecution and opposition and hatred from the world. Things are about to get pretty rough for these guys. And so the disciples are struggling with fear and massive insecurity. How are they going to make it on their own? How are they going to make it through the night? let alone fulfill God's mission for them in the days ahead. And, and John chapter 14 through 16 is filled with amazing encouragement and promises to help His fledgling disciples. Among them includes the truth that they will never be alone, that God the Holy Spirit will come and comfort and empower them and equip them to face the challenging days ahead. Jesus also promises them that, yes, they will have sorrow, but it will turn to joy. Jesus promises them that, yes, in this world they will have trouble, but that they need to be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. And, most importantly, Jesus has given them the assurance that He will not abandon them and leave them alone, but that the purpose of His departure is actually meant to secure for them an eternal dwelling place in heaven, in the Father's house, where they will be together forever. Jesus' death and resurrection will accomplish that. But if all that's not good enough, As we get to John 17, and we began John 17 a few weeks ago, Jesus now turns from talking to His disciples to talking to His Father. And as the disciples hear this conversation, and as we read this conversation, we are meant to swell with hope and confidence because Jesus is actually praying for us. He's praying for our good, for our protection, for our mission, and therefore we can face the future with full confidence, not in ourselves, but because we know that God the Father always hears the requests 
of his son, and he has the power to make those requests come to pass. So let's be encouraged together by this prayer of Jesus. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the readings of the words of our God. John chapter 17, we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. We're going to start in verse 6 and read on down through verse 19. Hear the words of our beautiful Lord and Savior. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we may behold and receive wonderful things in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, there are three particular points of encouragement from Jesus' prayer that I want to focus on this morning. And the first thing that we discover is that you belong to and are treasured by God. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. Who is the them? Well, we know who they are not. They're not the world. He says that right in the next sentence. Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not praying for the world. Now, in the Gospel of John, the word world is used to describe a humanity that is in rebellion against God. Jesus says that's not who he's praying for. Instead, look again at verse 9. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, the immediate application, the immediate way to think about this part of Jesus' prayer is, is that it's talking about those 11 original disciples who were with him. But there are truths in this prayer that are applicable to all disciples of of all points in time, including you in this room. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus doesn't, just doesn't have those 11 men on his heart as he prays. He's also thinking about you. That's why he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, going back to verse 9, Jesus says, I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So, what do we learn there? We learn that there are a people 
who were once in the world, who were a part of the sinful world system, and God has saved them out of the world. They, they, are, they, they are distinct from the world now. They belong to God. And what's more, we learn that God gives these people to Jesus. And this isn't the first time that we've heard this kind of language. Uh, back up to verse 6, Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Or, back up a few more verses to verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So, the people whom God has given to Jesus are believers… And we know that because these people are the ones that are described as having eternal life. But it's not just in John 17 that we see Jesus talking this way. Go back to John 6. Flip back with me a few pages. John chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So, these verses here give us even more help. There are a people that God has rescued out of the world, and these people are given to the Son. They're given to Jesus. And God has a specific will and purpose for these people. And that will is that Jesus would lose none of them. That's another way of saying that they will make it to heaven. They won't perish. They will all be raised up to newness of life at the end of the age, every single one of them. So if you are a believer this morning, guess what? All those verses are talking about you. You were chosen out of the world, and God now regards you as His possession. John MacArthur puts it this way when he says that Jesus is here praying for those who are gifts of the Father to the Son. Chosen by the Father before the world began, they are to be given to the Son as love gifts treasures given to the Son as an expression of His love. Every Christian is that love gift given to the Son, received by the Son, kept by the Son, raised by the Son to glory. Ever thought of yourself in that way, Christian? As a love gift from God the Father to God the Son? See, being a Christian doesn't just mean you're saved from hell, but but that you're actually given by God as a treasured love gift from the Father to Jesus. That's part of your identity as a Christian, and that is totally mind-blowing when you think about it and really dwell on that and let that truth sink into your heart about this aspect of your identity that some of you probably have never thought of before. Now, some people get the wrong idea about this, and they think that the fact that we are a treasured possession given from the Father to the Son speaks something about how wonderful and amazing man is. In fact, you'll hear this preached in some churches that man is so awesome and so amazing, 
And so wonderful that God just could not resist awesome, lovable people like us, and he just had to send Jesus into the world to save such a beautiful people. But the Bible paints a different picture. Yes, it is true that you and I and all mankind are made in the image of God, and that certainly gives us a worth and a dignity, no question about that. But on the other hand, because of our sin and rebellion, we have tarnished and trashed that worth. We, in our sin, have debased a glory that we once had. That's why Romans chapter 3, verse 12, in describing the morally depraved condition of man, says this, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, or some translations say useless. In other words, man's sinful moral condition has completely undermined and nullified the grand purpose for man's existence, namely to know and love and glorify God. Again, John MacArthur commenting on this notes that the, the Hebrew equivalent of that, of that word worthless or useless is used of milk that's gone sour. What do you do with sour milk? Yeah, pour it down the drain. And the human race in and of itself is rotten and corrupt to be thrown away like rotten fruits or bad milk. They, they have no more value. They're, they're, they're good for nothing in that sense. See, when God first created man and placed our ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden, at one time, they perfectly and beautifully reflected and imaged forth the glory of God in their lives. They were morally unstained. They were morally unblemished. But when they rebelled against God, their sin twisted and corrupted and warped God's image in them, and they became a horrible distortion of what God intended them to be. And friends, all of us have continued to carry Adam's legacy of corruption, disobedient and rebellious and morally rotten to the core. And here's the thing, it's people like these that God has chosen to love and redeem and treasure. And so in light of that, Consider this, if God is going to save you on the condition of your worth and your greatness and your value and your goodness, that then would speak a word about how great you are. But when we embrace what the Bible says about our condition and, the, and we embrace the fact that God chose to save you anyway, that speaks a word about how great God is. Salvation is not about the greatness of you. It's all about the greatness of God, how amazing God is, how patient God is, how loving and merciful and kind God is. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so sometimes here at Harbin's we sing that wonderful song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Now that should bring you incredible peace and security. If God is out looking for treasure, and if he's out looking to treasure people who are already good, 
and already perfect and already wonderful and awesome and worthy, and on the basis of that, he makes you his own, then none of us could ever have been chosen by God to be that treasure. But on the other hand, if God is out looking for wretches to claim as his own and to make them his special treasure, then we qualify, don't we? If you're a wretch like me, say amen. God has a history of making undeserved wretches his treasure. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, for example, God redeems Israel, and he tells them that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And then, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle takes that same kind of language, and he applies it to you. He applies it to the church, saying, you are a people for his own possession. And so in salvation, God rescues us and redeems us, and he takes wretches like us, and he begins to shape us and conform us into the image of Christ. That's one of the main goals of your redemption. Again, it's not just about getting out of hell. It's about a complete makeover. Ephesians 5 talks about Jesus being the groom the husband who dies for his bride, the church. Why? To sanctify her, to make her holy, to beautify her. How many of us know that we need a moral makeover, a spiritual makeover? Well, that's why Jesus came, to to see to it that our trashed and tarnished glory would be restored. It's beginning to happen to us now as the Holy Spirit is changing us and working in us and it'll be climaxed in heaven when we see the groom face to face. And there we will perfectly image forth the beauty of Christ. And there we will be presented before Christ, our husband, spotless and without blemish, reflecting back to him his own glory while worshiping him and praising him forever. And I cannot think of a more appropriate love gift for the Father to give to Christ than that. Christ deserves nothing less. So if you are If you truly belong to God, treasured by God, and a a love gift from the Father to the Son, that should give you great peace. That should give you great security. You know, sometimes Christians worry that God might one day cast them aside. But if you're truly a treasured possession, given as a love gift to Christ, that can never happen. Let me give you an illustration. You ever give someone a gift, and you thought it was a pretty great gift, uh, maybe, maybe a gift to your kids or, or somebody that you love, and a few weeks later or a few months later, they lose that gift, they misplace that gift, or worse, they re-gift it and you find out about that at like at one of those white elephant gift exchanges, and you're looking, you're like, well, hey, wait a minute, I recognize that gift. <laughs> I gave that to them last year. Well, if that happens, that communicates something of what they think of that gift. They obviously did not value that gift. They did not treasure that gift. Well, God's children are treasured, which means God's children are not regifted. God's children are not sent back. You're treasured, not because of how good you are, but in spite of how bad you've been. 
And if you're treasured by God and given to Jesus, that means you are his forever. Jesus says, I will lose none of those that the Father has given me. He says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you belong to and are treasured by God. Therefore, my next point, therefore, you are protected by God. There's something that you really treasure, something you really value. You're going to keep that safe. You're going to protect that. You're going to make sure nothing uh, snatches that away, steals that, harms that. Verse 11, Jesus says, this is back in John 17 now, he says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name of God has to do with his very essence and identity. It had to do with the truth about who God is. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. We trust in the name and the character, the reliability of the Lord our God. And Jesus here says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God's name, of who God is. Go back to verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Then look down at verse 8. Jesus says, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth, and they have believed. So tying, verse, tying, so, so tying this in with Jesus' request in verse 11, Jesus is essentially praying, Father, keep them in the truth of who you are, which has been perfectly revealed in me. Now, Jesus has perfectly kept his disciples up until this point. Look at verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now, the son of destruction, who's that? It's Judas. Judas, who betrayed Christ. Judas has fallen away. Judas is hellbound. Judas is not going to make it. And it's interesting that even in Jesus' prayer, it seems that Jesus is anticipating somebody saying, well, Jesus, you actually failed. You didn't keep them all. You said in John 6 that the will of the Father is that you should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But you lost at least one. And so it almost seems like Jesus anticipates an objection And so he helps us by adding a little clarification in verse 12. He says, And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is saying that Judas' defection wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a failure on the part of Jesus. It was actually part of the plan all along to include a traitor, a liar, a fake disciple, to include somebody like that in the group because God would use this traitor to fulfill the Scriptures, namely the Scriptures that the Messiah would be betrayed and arrested and would suffer and would die. Judas was never a genuine disciple. He was never a true believer. If he was, if he was, if Judas was a treasured possession that was given to Jesus by the Father and Jesus ended up losing Judas, then Jesus would have failed to do the will of the Father. Because, again, what's the will of the Father? 
that Jesus would lose none of those that had been given to him. Turn with me to, uh, to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John. If you're not sure where that is, that's near the end of your Bible. If you go all the way to the end, you hit Revelation. But if you go back a couple of books, you'll see 3 John, 2 John, then 1 John. And 1 John was written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And in 1 John chapter 2, the apostle is writing about people who were once part of the church, but now they have departed. They have turned their back on Christ. They are anti-Christ. And John wants to provide some clarity to this Christian community he's writing to who is no doubt disturbed by these people who appeared to be believers, and now they've done a complete 180. And look at what John says in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But, that, but they went out that it might be, be, become plain that they all are not of us. John is essentially saying that true Christians persevere. True disciples continue on in the faith. It's not that disciples never sin, never struggle with seasons of rebellion, but the point is, is that the true believer does not ultimately and permanently abandon Christ like these false disciples in 1 John 2 or like Judas. So going back to chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is essentially praying for the perseverance of all believers. Father, keep them in your name. Protect them from falling away. Don't let them be like Judas. Keep them in your truth and let them live in accordance with that truth. That's what Jesus is asking for. Father, finish what you've started. Complete the work that has begun. And just like Jesus here intercedes for the 11 disciples, praying for their protection Romans 8.34 gives us the assurance that Jesus is still interceding for us before the face of God the Father himself in the heavenly throne room. This is the heart's desire of Jesus, that all of his disciples then and now would be spiritually protected by God the Father. If you're here as a Christian this morning, that should give you tremendous encouragement. It really should. Jesus is praying for your spiritual preservation. And because your preservation is the will of the Father, you can have rock-solid confidence that the Father will fulfill the request of His Son. The Apostle Paul expresses this hope in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or in John chapter 10... Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd. We are his sheep. And Jesus there is assuring us that all of his sheep will make it. He says none of them will perish. Once a sheep, always a sheep. And what's the grounds for the security of the sheep? Again, is it your awesomeness, your goodness, your strength? No, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I've met Christians over the years who struggle with assurance of salvation. As a matter of fact, I'm seeing this more and more as a pastor. This is becoming a more and more common concern that people are bringing to me. I'm having to deal with this a lot. They have received Christ, they love Jesus. They try to follow after him, 
and yet they live in fear. They are in such bondage to fear and anxiety because they are weak in the faith and because they fail over and over again and, and because they struggle against sinful thoughts and desires and, and they, become, they become so discouraged by that. And they begin to wonder, am I going to make it? And maybe you're like that this morning. I want to encourage you that, you're, that, that, that you're, your final salvation is not ultimately up to your strength and your power. And thank God for that, right? Because if my final salvation is ultimately up to my strength and my power, the strength of Deemer Webb, I'm a goner. It's not happening. Epic fail. Illustration that has been helpful to me, maybe it will be to you. Imagine a father walking beside a railroad track with his three-year-old son. There's danger at hand, so the father holds the child's hand. If the boy's safety depends on the strength of his grasp on his father's hand, he is in serious danger. He is weak. He could lose his grip. He could wander into the path of a train. What keeps the child from destruction is not the boy's grip on his father's hand, but the father's grip on the child's hand. That's what Jesus is asking the father to do here. In John 17, keep your grip on the disciples. Keep them in your name. Now, does it mean that we don't have responsibility to pursue God, to follow God, to obey God, all those sorts of things? That's a, and that's for another sermon. But the focus here in our passage today is on the assurance that God is involved in the keeping and the preservation and the security of His disciples. Keep them in your name. Now, in the following verses, Jesus gets more specific about why we need to be protected and guarded by God, and why, if God doesn't keep us, we will not persevere to the end. We won't make it, and it's because we live in a spiritually dangerous world. Uh, Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that you guard them from the evil one. So there is a very real spiritual danger of compromising your allegiance to Christ, a very real spiritual danger of trivializing your integrity, of compromising your purity, of being drawn to and seduced by seemingly more attractive and more pressing concerns that may seem to be more immediately satisfying for you than Christ. There are dangers and traps for the believer everywhere, from the threat of severe physical persecution in Iraq to the seduction of materialism and community popularity in the Atlanta suburbs. We not only live in a world that hates Christ and His followers, Jesus talks about that in John 15, but we also have a very real invisible enemy, the devil. Jesus here calls him the evil one in verse 15. And the devil has no problem using either the threat of persecution or the seduction of popularity to distract, discourage, and beat down the believer. This is why Jesus prays for us. He says, keep them from the evil one, protect them from the dangers in this world. You see, for you and I, as believers, 
We are no longer of the world. God has rescued us from that world system and has given us to Christ. We're no longer of the world, but we're still in the world. Look at verse 11. He says it. I'm no longer in the world. They are in the world. And then look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world hates them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, with that in mind, considering the world's hatred for believers, considering the spiritual dangers that are in the world, what is our relationship to be to the world? We know the world's relationship to us, which is hostility and opposition. What is our relationship to the world to be like? Answer, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And here's my final observation. Okay, so you belong to and are treasured by God, therefore you are protected by God so that you can be on mission for God. We are not of the world, we are in the world. But more than simply being in the world, we are actually sent into the world, sent back into the ungodly, Christ-hating, satanically influenced world that we were rescued from, that we used to be in bondage to, and we are mandated now to go back into that same world on mission for God. Now, I've often seen two extremes from Christians in regards to their relationship to the world, and both are wrong and both are disobedient to Christ. On the one side, you have some who feel like they need to isolate themselves from the world. And others feel like they need to assimilate and blend in to the world, blend in with the world. So you got isolation on the one hand and assimilation on the other. Some Christians and churches build their own little Christian cocoons. And so Christians, such Christians only have relationships with other believers. Their social interactions are limited to church functions. They're in a safe little bubble with their Christian books and Christian movies and Christian music and Christian t-shirts. And we withdraw and we isolate ourselves from the world. We become like medieval monks in a way, and we feel that if we are doing that, we're living the Christian life. But actually, if we do that, we are neglecting one critical component of the Christian life, and that is mission. We have Christians trying to escape from the world, and yet Jesus prays in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So so we're actually going against what Jesus is praying about. As you've sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I send them into the world. Friends, we are sent by Jesus into the world on a divine mission. Do you ever think about yourself and your life in that way? Or do you simply think about yourself and your life in terms of my family, my career, paying the bills, having a few good friends, and having a nice, easy, comfortable life? How do you, how do you think about your life? Do you see it as mission? We are sent as Jesus was sent, and Jesus was sent by God the Father into the world. For what? To hang out exclusively with his Christian buddies? No. He was sent into the world to engage with an unbelieving world, even to engage with people that would make some snobbish religious types nervous, prostitutes, thieves, cheaters, people who were notorious sinners, 
coming from a lifetime of rebellion against God. And so often, you'll have churches, Christians turn up their noses at certain types of sinners. God sends Jesus into this kind of world full of these kinds of people, and He proclaims the gospel to them. He shows them the truth about God and about their sin. He demonstrates love and compassion to a world that, without God's salvation, will go to hell. He came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save a condemned world. Jesus turns to His disciples and, by implication, turns to you this morning and says, as I have been sent into the world, so I now send you. But the world will not hear your words, and they will not know your love, and therefore they will not know your Savior if you withdraw and hide yourself away from that world. Sometimes I think we Christians isolate ourselves out of selfishness. It's easy and say, I'm speaking for myself, guys. I, I struggle with this stuff myself. I'm preaching to myself. I'm being convicted by the Spirit myself here. It's easy and safe in our little bubble, right, just to stay in there. And we're not interested in complicating our lives by getting involved with people who are different than us, uh, people who might reject us or reject the gospel that we preach. And how ironic it is sometimes that Christians are like this. Well, I'm not going to associate with those people. I'm going to isolate myself. And yet, we were those people. No better than anybody else. And God has redeemed us and saved us from a life of sinful destruction. And how dare we now say, well, I'm not going to pass that on to somebody else. I'm not going to tell other people the way of salvation. I'll just enjoy it myself. God help us. We've been rescued from the world to be sent back into that same world on a rescue mission to save even more souls from the world by proclaiming to them the God who saved us. So we're not to isolate ourselves from the world, but neither are Christians to assimilate to the world, to conform to this world, and that's the other extreme. You have Christians who, in the name of mission, compromise the truth, compromise their lives, all in the name of reaching the lost. They become so desperate to engage with the world and be accepted by the world that they become like the world, and in the end, their lives look no different than the world. Friends, if we really want to help the world, the last thing the world needs is for us to just quietly blend in with our disguises so good that there ends up being nothing distinguishable about our lives at all. Nothing in our words and in our deeds and our lifestyle that can point the world to the one who has come to save the world. Is that not what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, how are they going to see that light shine if you're completely cutting yourself off from interaction with the world? The Apostle Peter writes this about you. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's 
special possession, his treasured possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You've been called out of the darkness, out of the world, to declare the praises of God to the world, to commend God to the world, so that they may emerge from the darkness of the world into God's light as you have done. Now, both isolation from the world and assimilation to the world undercut our ability to obey verses like we find in Matthew 5 and, 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 and here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I wonder, which, which extreme do you gravitate towards? Do you, do you tend more to be an isolationist or an assimilationist? Did I say that right? I bet you with some of us, the pendulum kind of tends to swing from season to season, doesn't it? Sometimes we, we tend to retreat And then sometimes we tend to assimilate, and we always have to be on guard about these things. Jesus is fully aware of the temptations and spiritual dangers that exist for his disciples, and that's why he prays in verse 17, he says, sanctify them. Now this prayer for sanctification is a prayer that his disciples would be set apart in a special way for their mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world, and it's a prayer that his disciples would grow in holiness and Christ-likeness which will protect them from the traps of the world and the schemes of Satan and will make them more effective in their mission. So what does it mean to be set apart, to be sanctified for mission? It means that if you are set apart, your life is not determined or controlled by other things. Instead, your life is determined and controlled by the thing that you are set apart for. And so ask yourself questions like this. What really determines my life? What determines my schedule? What determines how I spend my money? What determines how I live just every day? What determines how my relationships are structured and and lived out? What determines those things? Approval from others? Or maybe it's a desire for success? Does that control your life? Is it some sort of a, a pursuit of career or even your family, if anything that is elevated above, is anything elevated above the fact that you were set apart by Christ for his mission. So we should regularly pray, oh God, I belong to you. And today, I want to see things in light of having been set apart for you and your purposes. I want to do things in light of the fact that you've set me apart. I want everything today to flow from the truth that my life is not my own. Even if all I'm doing today is clocking out, clocking in and clocking out, and being in the office, or changing diapers, or doing whatever, it's not about me. It's not about my goals, my plans, my designs. Ultimately, it's about what you want, and it's about your glorious mission. My life is yours. Now, what will help you to be effectively living as, as one who is set apart from God? What's going to help you to do that? Look again at verse seven, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. God's Word, this Scripture, this Bible is the means by which you will be sanctified. God will do this through the truth found in His Word. It is through this Word 
that you will not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you are to be faithfully on mission, you've got to be immersed in the Word. If you struggle with isolation or assimilation, dig deep into this book. Take it not just into your head, but into your heart, and watch yourself be radically transformed. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I consecrate myself. You see, Jesus too was sanctified. Jesus too was set apart by God the Father for a special mission. And what ultimately was that purpose? Why did he come? Jesus answers that question in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was specially set apart by God to die, to give his life away, literally, as a ransom. You and I were in the world. We were in bondage to sin and Satan and death. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, paying for our sins, releases from worldly captivity all who believe in him, Because when we believe in him, his payment is applied to our sin debt, wiping our debt clean and setting us free from spiritual slavery in the world. His death frees us from our sin and frees us up to be sanctified for his goals and his purposes. And that's precisely why he says in verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In truth, his consecration as a sacrifice in sin offering is the very foundation of our sanctification, for, uh, of us being set apart for mission. And the mission is simple, to point the world to that sacrifice, that great sin offering, so that others from the world may be saved and brought into the life and mission of God just like us. So Harbin's church, you belong to and are treasured by God. Therefore, you are protected by God so that you can be on mission for God. You, Harbin's Church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's pray.